folks, and welcome to Growing Forward, the podcast about ethical community-based business. I'm your hostess, Bethany Latham, and I'm speaking with makers, doers, and entrepreneurs who are positively contributing to our communities locally and globally as we humans grow forward. Episode number four. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ingrid Fromm and Sean Neuer, owners of the Ralstead Farm, a quarter-acre urban homestead within the city limits of Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi, Ingrid and Sean. Welcome to the show. Let's just dive right in. When did you guys um, first get involved with uh, horticulture? Well, um, I wouldn't say that I'm exactly involved in horticulture. I know Ingrid actually worked for a nursery a number of years ago, but um, I've been growing things on and off since I was, I don't know, uh, probably preteen. Okay, awesome. So your family always kind of had a, yeah, like a kitchen uh, Growing garden. up, we had a garden, a small garden in the back. And then uh, my grandparents had a piece of property on the Oswego River in upstate New York. And my granddad always had a very large garden there. And then for a while, uh, you know, I was growing in pots, living in apartments. And like when we first got together and we were renting mm-hmm. together, we kind of grew stuff in pots. But the game plan has always been to be to get up you know, a small piece of property where we can actually just dig a hole in the ground and start planting stuff. Yeah. yeah, That's my dream as well to like own a, own a place. So you guys do own your home and you're based in Raleigh, yes. North Carolina inside the city limits, yes. right? So you're farming on a quarter acre. Yeah. Sweet. W- will you tell everyone about like what inspired you to, to get going? Um, we talked about this when we met, we met about, I don't know, nine years ago. And when we talked about moving, we lived up north in uh, Jersey. We were living together. And um, we would talk about moving down here and what kind of land we wanted and what we wanted a garden. So when we finally did move down here in 2014 um, and bought this place in 2015, um, it just kind of grew from there. We were looking for a property where we would have enough sun to grow and have solar panels because that was something that we really wanted. And in this case, it turned out that the best part to grow food and put the solar panels was in the front. So our whole place kind of became this showcase garden in a sense because everything's right out there in the front and the side for everyone to see. Yeah, how do your neighbors like your setup? Nobody's complained yet. Every everybody that said something has always said something kind. So um, we tend to think that everybody likes it. Um, we get a lot of compliments. It's so, so beautiful. Just looking at your website, it's it looks like such a lush, beautiful oasis. It's really, yeah. really cool. I wish more people were doing that in kind of like suburban, urban settings where it's just so much more useful to grow edible plants. I know. We feel the same way. I think more and more people are, though. Um, I don't know if it's just because I'm out there looking, but I see a lot more people um, on YouTube videos and on websites that are actually planting gardens, and a lot of them actually in the front yard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so cool. We're seeing this resurgence of that, I think, in the last like 10 years or so. And I think, honestly, social media has helped it because it's kind of trending, yeah. and people are like realizing that 
you, their neighbors like you guys, your neighbors probably look over and they're like, oh my gosh, they're growing so much food in their yard. We could do that. Exactly. And the one thing that we have noticed was that people from other countries, for them, this is normal. So people that would be walking down our block and they were from Jamaica, Germany, any other country, really, have always said, oh, my grandfather did this or my mom did this and we had chickens and we had everything like this out in the front. We always grew our own food. So it's Mm -hmm. something that's very popular in Europe and it's just kind of catching up here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So how much food are you growing on your property? Do you have some kind of idea of how many different varieties? Oh, the number of varieties is actually massive. Um, and we're trying to pare it down. I think the first year we actually did, like in the neighborhood of tomatoes and peppers, I think we were doing about 30 varieties of each. And we're actually trying to pare that down. And the the number of varieties that we're actually growing is pretty staggering. Um, I get the question a lot at work, you know, oh, what kind of stuff do you grow in your garden? And then when you start to like run through the list, by the time you get through, you know, three or four dozen items, yeah. it's like, wow, <laughs> Definitely. et cetera. We pretty much, the, the criteria is something that we eat. So if we eat it, we'll grow it. With the can. exception of okra. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We grow okra because it's got such beautiful flowers. And a lot of people down south um, really like it so that we can share it with other people. But yeah, we don't eat okra. <laughs> but oh, for yeah. the most part, it's something that we, we like it. And we're going to eat it. We're going to grow it. Uh huh. It's so interesting. I work for a, a private chef, or kind of with him. I grow the food, and then he cooks it. And he loves okra, so we grew a bunch of okra this year. And I was always thinking it's so slimy, and I I really don't like it. And he told me to take some home and just put them on a cookie sheet with like olive oil and sea salt, and it was actually so delicious. My uh, partner and I really enjoyed eating it that way. All right. Well, now I'm going to yeah. try it just because you said that. I will give it a try. <laughs> I was really surprised. You may, you might be a converted okra eater. Yeah, I might be. <laughs> and so did you guys buy your property? Did it, when, it, when you bought it, did it already have like good soil or has it taken you a while to work it into this beautiful permaculture oasis that it is today? <laughs> Well, when we first bought the property, it was all trees and grass, and the soil is absolutely horrible. It's just red clay. Um, So we actually started – we just put a couple of raised beds down that first year and just filled them with some soil that we brought in. And then we've kind of slowly been adding. And then we discovered um, a wood chip technique they refer to as back to Eden gardening. And we started doing that in between the beds and we've been laying wood chips out pretty heavily and then filling the beds themselves with good soil that we've either brought in or, you know, a combination of compost that we've developed here on site. Um, And just recently we found that um, when we were surveying the beds that were actually kind of falling apart, even though they were cedar, they were starting to rot out Mm. because of the wood chips. And as we started pulling some of it up, we found that the soil is actually pretty well transformed. Um, and that's been over the course of about a three-year process. And we, we thought it would take significantly longer, but um, that's did, awesome. Did a yeah, fair amount in the three years. Are you going to start just planting directly into the ground, or do you want to continue using raised beds? 
we're we're actually doing a combination of both, but in the most of the front, we've been pulling up all of the the cedar beds. So we're actually in the process of transforming this winter. Yeah, it's it's hard because it's on a slope, our property. So the beds were really never lying levelly, like lying in a level surface. So they would fall apart. We would put rebar in there to try to get them to, to stay together. And then with the wood chips piling up, it was just leading to the rot of them. So they weren't really staying together. So we, Sean kind of came up with a whole um, more of a traditional design where it's 30-inch rows and was it 15-inch between? Yeah, 15-inch walkways. Right. So we're doing that this winter which is becoming a little backbreaking, but I think at the end it will be worth it because we can grow a lot more and more efficiently. Okay. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to see photographs. I can't wait till it's done because my back is Oh, man. Me. Yeah, it's a lot of sweat equity. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that, you, you know, you're organically farming your quarter acre a lot. It sounds like just such an amazing thing how much – how much food you can get out of such a small piece of land. I find that really, really inspiring. And so you collect your own rainwater, you have a solar array, and you also raise chickens. Sorry, the chickens in the backyard? Yes. They're actually on the side. So they're about 20 feet from – the coop's about 20 foot okay. feet from the sidewalk. So they're right nice. out there for everybody to see. Um, yeah, which is one of the reasons why we got uh-huh. such a nice coop from Carolina Coops. Uh-huh. <laughs> put a plug in there. So you guys both, you're, you're like, this is kind of your homestead. And then I know you also, it's a business and you participate in the Raleigh Farmers Market, but you both work also off-site. Yes. Well, I work off-site. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um she works, but she actually works from home, which actually works out pretty well because she's here to take care of the animals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's ideal. This is really our our business is kind of a side hustle right now. <laughs> um, we do a local farmers market, Midtown Farmers Market, from April to November, and that's just been something we started a little over a year ago which we really enjoy. And we sell um, microgreens there. Okay. You mentioned selling black garlic as well, which is really interesting. Can you tell me about that? Black garlic was something I wanted to try. And um, I actually started trying it in a um, a rice cooker. Um, But most rice cookers actually shut off after, let's say, 10 hours. And black garlic actually takes weeks to make. Um, so I just actually broke down and got a machine that will actually just kind of, you know, heat it for a long period of time with moisture. And, uh, it actually turned out pretty well. So it was just another offering to have at the the farmer's market. And we, we started packaging it up and taking it with us and it's actually been moving pretty good. People have, uh, have received it pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Were you just like, you know, faced with a surplus of food and wanting to find a way to give it to people or sell it to people? Or did you kind of have the intention of starting to have more of a, a business with your property? I think originally we started off just trying to grow things for ourselves. And we didn't really know how well we were going to do with certain things. 
Um, so we, uh, you know, um, we plant a lot in hopes uh, that some of it would take and we, we get to harvest some of it. And, and certain certain produce items will end up with an abundance of. So we kind of looked to give it away. And then we actually started selling off a little bit of it just to kind of reduce the costs. Like this year, I think we did 180 pounds in, in cucumbers. Oh, and wow. we just don't, we don't <laughs> eat 180 pounds of cucumbers. But the, the farmer's market, originally how we got into the farmer's market was I was looking for a way to grow greens during the winter when normally you wouldn't have greens. And so I fell into this microgreens. And we've got a, a guest bedroom in our house that has a, like an industrial metal shelf on in there with um, four-foot LED shop lights. And we use that to start seeds in the wintertime for mm. plants in the spring. And since that sits idle most of the year, I thought, well, microgreens would be perfect under there. And so as I was looking up microgreens, I found that more and more people are able to actually sell them, um, you know, at farmer's markets and chefs and things like that. So we decided we would give it a shot. And that's when Ingrid found the farmer's market. And nobody there was selling the microgreens. So that was an easy in for us. Awesome. Did you have to get like licensing or permits or anything to participate in the farmer's market? There is, there's a, like a permit we have to have um, for the city of Raleigh to be able to produce the microgreens and sell them at the farmer's market. But I don't know that the market actually requires any kind of licensing itself though. Yeah. Raleigh has a lot of different farmer's markets. There's, um, there's a big state farmer's market and there's some smaller ones in different towns, neighboring towns. And this one is particularly small, but it's very specific and it's, it's kind of, they've done a really good job of having a lot of diversity, mm. which is why we don't sell our produce there because they have about two or three produce farmers there. So we, we're not like people aren't in competition with each other. Everything is kind of to just add to, to it. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's worked out really, yeah, it's worked out really well. And we love seeing the different people because a lot of people are from our neighborhood because this is about three miles from our house. Um, so it, it's nice to see the, the people in the neighborhood that come out and our regulars that we've met there that come with their big basket and fill it with all produce and all local foods. Mm -hmm. And they really appreciate what the farmer's market represents. We find the customers. And so we really enjoy doing it um, in the season when we do it with the microgreens. And we just try to keep adding as much things as we can that aren't in competition with anybody else. So we do like dried herbs. I have like little containers like little mason jars for the herbs and because we have so many herbs in the garden so i just started drying those and packaging them and selling those and then like sean did the black garlic and i did smudge sticks so <laughs> anything that we grow that we can bring to people we'll we'll give it That's a shot so, cool. <laughs> so you really form your own little niche at the farmer's market and i'm sure that that pushes your creativity as well to think of like things that other people aren't doing Exactly. That must be so awesome for your neighbors to be able to watch you grow all the produce and then go and buy it from you. <laughs> yeah. 
Some of them don't even have to leave their house to benefit. We've been known to carry around a basket or two in the evening and just start knocking on doors uh-huh. to get produce away. Isn't it just amazing if everyone was doing what you guys are doing? If you can just imagine the community food sheds and the, like, the abundance and food security within your neighborhood would be through the roof. You could probably feed like large parts of Raleigh if, if you know, crisis hit. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it's it's funny because there are some people that after we moved in and we started doing this, a couple of our neighbors put beds on the side of their house. Actually, two of them did on the side. Um, and we would give them plants that we started. Um, another one did it in the front. She has since moved. Um but it's nice. They realized they got inspired because they realized how much that they could grow in just a four by four bed. So they started with like a four by four or four by eight bed and we gave them some plants and they started, they started growing their own stuff and they get a big kick out of it. And then on the side of our house, there's a sidewalk and that area of grass between the street and the sidewalk. So I pulled up that grass and I last year started planting a garden there with my intent was to not have to mow the lawn and not have any grass. But the other part of it was to grow a lot of herbs and stuff for neighbors that couldn't grow herbs because they had too many trees and things like that. So that whole strip is about, I don't know, it's about 200 feet or better. Um, I mean, square to, feet, yeah. Yeah. Um, along the side of our house towards the street. So that has a, that's become kind of a little permaculture garden where it has different seasons and it looks different in different seasons and it has perennial herbs and, and um, uh, different perennials and some mm. greens and stuff that we throw in there. So that's kind of been like our little neighborhood community garden. We're trying to get people to, partake and plant and do what they want there as well. So you describe your uh, farm on your website as being a wildlife habitat. So you're very conscious of creating those kind of wild spaces for for insects and other critters to come make a home. Yeah, we looked at what you needed to do to become a certified wildlife habitat. And we didn't do it right away because there's certain criteria that you needed. And once we started producing enough where we had water for them and and shelter for them, I'm eating like rabbits and insects and frogs and stuff, um, we felt confident enough, like, okay, I think we've got the whole checklist going. And it's it's incredible how alive our, our front is from when it was just grass and trees. Yeah, that's like a wasteland. Exactly. It's a buzz of activity now. That's so Yeah, cool. I mean we got we got frogs and toads, dragonflies, different kinds of bees, rabbits, moles and moles and I mean it's it's more, and more as the years go on, more beneficial insects than pests too, I've noticed. Are you starting to feel like you're gardening with nature instead of against it? Or are the moles and voles still like villains on your property? I don't think they've actually ever been villains. We haven't really had a problem with them. I think uh, our biggest problem is with the deer and the rabbits, but the rabbits not even so much. We've had a 
a couple like set up camp for the, the season in our um, bean beds. And we can see where they've been eaten, but it doesn't really seem to make a dent. I think the deer are, are probably the most devastating, and they I don't see them as much as when we originally started. And they can do some damage to a young plant. I mean, they did totally decimate your peppers right before we had our chicken tour. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of sad. Um, <laughs> we did like a, a, it's called the Tour de Coupe, which is like a urban chicken tour here in Raleigh. And they, um, people have chickens and gardens and stuff. So people to come and tour around and, and our, our, Peppers were just little soft. Oh, no. <laughs> the night before, the deer just came and decimated them. Oh, man. But for the most part, the, I find that the, the moles have reduced the amount of Japanese beetles that we've had in previous years. Because they eat the grubs, and that's where the Japanese beetles come from. So between the chickens and the moles, I found that I didn't have as many Japanese beetles attacking me whenever I would go out into the garden in the summer. So that was good. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. I'm I'm gardening in the high desert in Santa Fe, so we have a very different set of issues. And I'll often run into people and talk about my my dream of like buying a big piece of land in the Midwest or the Southeast or on the East Coast where land is much more affordable and much more farmable. But everyone's like, oh, you can't do permaculture there because of the deer, or you can't do permaculture because of the powdery mildew. What what have you been your biggest challenges besides the Japanese beetles? Well, we've had the Japanese, aside from the Japanese beetles and the deer, we've had the, the powdery mildew as well. But um, there's been a, a number of challenges, and I think they're we're kind of I don't know that we've actually experienced all of the challenges yet, but um, they just don't seem to be as devastating as when we first started. Mm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but no, no, we get we get some pests on the the tomatoes. I think the the pests are probably some of the worst problems, um, but that's what makes me look more into permaculture. Like, what can I plant? to keep those pests away from my tomatoes. You know, the whole companion planting, you know, planting kale near this because that will deter this type of bug. Um, so it, it's it's not, nothing's been like decimating any kind of crop. And we try to plant, I know for me, when I plant tomatoes, I'll, I'll scatter them. So if something has a pest, it doesn't affect the other ones. Or if I get some kind of fungus, it won't affect mm -hmm. all my plants. Um, so it, it hasn't, like things haven't really been horrible. I mean, the other challenges we have are it being really dry in the late summer. July and August is very dry. Mm. And that's a really big growing season for us. So I'm curious with your water usage, you have 21 rain barrels. Is that right? Um, I think if you count the rain barrel at the chicken coop, I think that's right. So we got 16 out front, two by the potting bench, two in the back. So that's 20. Yeah. So 21 if you count the, the rain barrel by the chicken coop. And those are all coming off of your roof, all the water for those? 
Um, the one that's actually out by the chickens is coming off of a steel roof um, where the chickens are, but the the rest of them come off either the the house roof or the shed roof. Does that pretty much cover your water needs for the garden? It hasn't yet, um, but we've actually expanded this year. Um, so last year out front, we were running eight 50-gallon rain barrels, and then this year we kind of changed it up a little bit. So we're doing 1660. Wow. So have you haven't really gone through a full season with that much water available to you? No, and Sean's going to work on, he's working on um, making it so they have a, don't you want to use like a pump so we can use kind of a sprinkler system where we can water using the rain barrels? Because many times when we get rain, we'll have like four days of rain and then we'll use the water and then it'll be dry for four weeks. (laughs) So the weather in Raleigh doesn't really permit us to use the rain barrels as efficiently as we would want to. So I think with Sean's ideas of of how to add more and use them better, then we'll be able to take advantage of the water that we do have. Yeah. So um, it's still a learning process for us. We've only been doing this for a a few years now and, you know, we both do have day jobs, so it's, it's not a full-time experience for us. But um, the water has been a challenge, and we've looked at a number of ways to reduce our water dependence, one of them being the wood chips. And that's that's been fairly significant, except um, that does a better job outside of the beds um, and probably do a little bit better now that we're actually pulling up the beds and growing straight in the ground. Another method that we used was Oya's. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with those being in the Santa Fe area yourself, but it's basically just a, a clay pot that allows water to seep into the ground at root level when the ground becomes dry. And it seemed like a great idea at the time, except running around trying to fill all the oils was just time consuming and tedious. Mm-hmm. So I think now what we're looking for is um, a larger volume of water with the ability to do some overhead watering. So we'll use an impact sprinkler connected to a pump and we'll try that out this year and, and see how far that gets us mm-hmm. through the season. Yeah, pretty much everywhere I've worked in Santa Fe, we always have to use like drip irrigation lines buried underneath mulch because otherwise it's just so dry here that the water like evaporates immediately. We tried the Oyas as well. Is that what you're calling them? I I didn't know that name for them. Okay, the Oyas, yeah. And I, I hear you. They're very time consuming to put together and then bury and then check on. Yeah. I mean, it works if you have a couple of beds, but once you start, I don't know, with like 50 something beds, it's, (laughs) it becomes a little too much. There is actually a way to tie them together with, you can use like basically a drip line for them. Um, and you can actually connect them together. So, um, Mm -hmm. you can drill a hole straight through the neck and then connect it with some valves and stuff. And I'm sure that would work pretty well on a very flat piece of property. Mm-hmm. But us being on a slope is presented a whole new challenge for us when it comes to the watering there. So I think our the overhead impact sprinkler is probably going to be our best method of attack. Have you like done any swales on your property to kind of help with the water and the contour? We have not done any swales, and that would actually be a little bit challenging given the topology of of the property itself. It's not a very large piece of property, mm-hmm. 
And if we were going to do swales, we'd have to kind of cut two swales, like one right in the center and one right at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think for, I don't think for our property that that's going to be the the best method. If we had something that was a little bit larger and was probably shaped a little bit differently, I think swales would probably work out pretty well for us. But given our limited size and and the degree of slope that we have, um, I, I just don't think, and I could be wrong, but I just don't think the swale would be the most efficient means of, mm. of retaining water for us. So your property, it looks like in the pictures, it's kind of terraced in the front. Is that right? It's so lush, it's kind of hard to tell. It's sloped. It's sloped. It's not exactly terraced. We do have some beds that are actually mm-hmm. cut into the slope. Um, so those are those are pretty well stepped. Um, but uh, the rest of it is just a um, a somewhat gradual slope. It's maybe a little aggressive. But the slopes, it's not the same throughout the property. So as you move from one end of the property to another, Mm -hmm. the slope is a little bit different and it's great. Sounds like a very challenging piece of land that you're just killing it. Yeah, well, it's it's had some incarnations because it was very sloped. And we've added so much material with the wood chips and the soil. And when we put the, we actually had a patio put in in the back. Our backyard's actually quite normal. It's got a patio, some grass for the dogs, and some fruit trees. Um, but when we had the patio put in, it dislodged a lot of soil, and there was a big pile of soil on the side of our yard when they were working on it. And Sean had the idea for them to flatten out an area there because there was no real flat surface, and we had talked about putting a greenhouse. So we had them build a retaining wall with and flatten out the side of our house, nice chunk on a level piece, and with the with the thoughts of doing the greenhouse, and then that ended up getting switched to a chicken coop because <laughs> I didn't want the chicken coop in the backyard because of the dogs, because I have one dog that would be fine and one dog that wouldn't be fine, so I just didn't want it to be stressful. So we ended up getting the chicken coop on the side of the yard. And that kind of completely changed what the side of our house looked like. If you look at the pictures when we first moved in, there's some progression pictures on the website as well. You can see how it just kind of sloped down and then we had it built up. We had raised beds first and then we had the chicken coop. Awesome. Which we have now. Do you utilize the chicken manure for the garden or for your compost? We do. It took two years, but I finally cleaned out my deep litter coop <laughs> and house. So, um, and we had six chickens for two years and um, it didn't even have to be cleaned out, but we did clean it out. And now we have nine chickens. So we'll probably be doing it once a year. So what we did was we cleaned it out and we put it in a whole area where there was a bunch of beds to kind of let it cure. And we'll be doing that probably every fall, um, more to use in the garden than the fact that it might need to be done because the deep litter method really works. Cool. <laughs> yeah. What are you doing with all the eggs from nine chickens? <laughs> um, we, we have a bunch that, that buy from us regularly. 
Um, and right now, we only have a couple are molting, and the three that we added in June, only two are laying right oh, now. Okay. So the third one hasn't started yet. They're just little. Because the days got so short. You know how the days get shorter, and they got she got of age to lay, and the days were very short, so she'll probably start laying in January. So you're going to have a whole new kind of water system, huge surplus of chickens, and and like a whole new layout for your front garden in the spring. It's going to be 2020 is the year. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to That's come so back. Cool. Yeah, I'll have come to have another interview. Show. I'm super curious to see what, how it goes. <laughs> so far, has you has your farming experience been lucrative? Or is it just kind of offsetting the cost of your labor and, and all of the supplies you have to buy? Uh, I certainly wouldn't define it as lucrative. And I don't know don't know that it's actually offset the cost. Um, it helps to defray the cost. Um, but we were never in it for the money. Um, our goal is basically to kind of just become a little bit more self-sufficient and kind of look at our, our carbon footprint and try to reduce it. And I, I think we're still struggling to get to a point where I think we'd be comf- comfortable with our carbon footprint. Um, but we're, we try to keep it forefront in our consciousness and look at the different things that we do um so yeah collecting the rainwater i mean um for every gallon of rainwater we collect is a gallon of water that isn't washing trash into waterways it's a gallon of water that doesn't have to be treated at uh at a water treatment facility and then pumped out to us um you know by by utilizing um organic material to build the soil. Um, we're actually regenerating the soil on our property, but there's other things that they could probably use a little bit more work. And, and I think we're trying to work on things like packaging, um, trying to buy s- stuff that doesn't have quite as much packaging and, um, you know, I guess the, like the, the bags that we just got, we got those, those cloth bags, um, to use in place of the plastic bags that you would normally stuff your produce in at the supermarket. So that all kind of ties in together. So it's, it wasn't really about generating an income. It was more about, you know, um, looking at our impact on, on the planet. Yes, I love that. You guys are good people. It's a labor of love. And I think what something else we've kind of evolved into is that we realized that having the garden out front and reaching people, whether it's through um, different tours that we have been a part of, whether it's a chicken tour, we've done some garden tours, um, that people really respond well to what we're doing and they find it inspirational, even if they can do a little bit of what we're doing, which we love hearing. So it's kind of put us in this path of maybe setting this property up as a teaching garden for people of all different ages, whether it's college or, or high school or elementary school or adult, if people just see what you can do on a small scale without, you don't have to be an expert to grow something, you know, just to kind of impart that on the people because people seem to really respond to that. And realize that, oh, I didn't think of putting a bed in my front yard, but that's where my son is. And showing them that it can be done 
And like I said, it doesn't have to be done on the scale that we're doing, but yeah, even on some scale is has been really people really responded to that. So I think that's kind of the path that we're trying to head in as well. So our we don't really have like a business plan, but I think whatever we do with this garden, we'll always kind of share it with people and it'll probably be out there and, and teach as much as we can mm-hmm. what we know and continue to learn ourselves. I'm sure you could host like, you know, classes on your property too. <laughs> inspire your neighbors to start like a community food shed once a week where you all share out your produce and, and then you convince them to come take classes from you as well so that they can participate. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we're looking to do stuff like that. Um, and and we're, you just, you can talk about the share waste mm-hmm. that we're starting to do now as well. Yeah, um, there's a, there's actually a website called Share Waste, and it's basically designed to to connect people that have um, compostable material connect with people that are will take in compostable material. Share Waste. Um, so we've got Share Waste. Oh, share cool. Waste. That's awesome. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah, so we've got. Um, I'm trying to think now. What have we got? Three, four, five, six, six composters plus a vermicomposter wow. on the property here um and now we're starting we've got a bunch of these uh food grade buckets that we're actually starting to share with people so that they can actually bring their their material in for us to compost which will then turn into healthy soil which will eventually mm-hmm. turn into healthy food that that's we'll amazing share with other people, so. i've tried to kind of align with some local restaurants in santa fe just to take their uh, composting food scraps to the chickens, but it was with my own personal chickens. And um, they, I think they were, there's so much fried food involved that the chickens started to like change colors. And I decided it was probably not a great thing. Oh no. (laughs) They were eating like deep fried Brussels sprouts every day for a little while there. (laughs) My my chickens are way too bougie to eat that, by the way. Oh goodness! But we do so have talk- we like we have the neighbors that would bring us like our, our neighbor across the street. He would bring us his compost all the time, and he'll bring us like a watermelon rind, you know, for the chickens and things like that. So now that we have this, we have a restaurant that's interested. And they're going to be picking up some buckets, and they'll separate the eggs and the um, <clears throat> coffee grounds and the food waste, and the eggs I will bake and crush and feed back to the chickens Mm. because that's the best use of eggs for eggshells for me. Um, And we're excited about kind of expanding that. This is something new that we've discovered and that people are starting to find and starting to find us with the share waste. So hopefully that'll kind of spread the word as well. Yeah. That sounds like an awesome way to connect with your community. (laughs) So you guys have talked quite a bit about permaculture. You obviously are, permaculturists um, but you mentioned some other techniques you're using as well like the back to Eden deep mulching method are there any other parts of your property where you're experimenting with different gardening techniques we'd like to try to get into a little more vertical gardening for the space we've uh, worked with some of the square foot gardening raised bed gardening and a, a lot of the things that you normally hear um, there's a, a technique I've fell into just recently it's called um korean natural farming 
it's a method of taking a, a complex set of organic inputs and transforming them into fertilizer. It's supposed to be really amazing, but it's um, it's really kind of complex with a lot of steps. And we're kind of just getting started with that right now. Um, the first step is to propagate mycelium, which uh, we have plenty of due to the wood chips in the yard. Um, and that's been a kind of a slow process. And I think it, it may have something to do with the time of year. Um, but we're always looking for, for different methods. And I think if something makes sense for us, we're always willing to give it a try. Yeah, it's so so cool to hear about other people experimenting and what everyone's doing. And then I'm sure just figuring out what works on your property. Like at this point, after farming there for three years, have you kind of noticed certain species of, for instance, like peppers or tomatoes that just do super well on your site? I don't know that it's actually like a species of pepper or species of tomato. Um, I think it would be more like a, a variety of plant, like the, the melons do pretty well. Mm. Um, some things not as great, like the onions were, were good that first year up where, when they were by the chickens, but have been a little slow. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's more a variety. Than yeah. A yeah. You're, you're totally right. I misspoke. Yeah. We take, um, notes, we have garden notes. <laughs> and when we started out with whether it was like 24 or 30 varieties of peppers or tomatoes, um, those are the things that we grow the most varieties of. Um, we took notes and decided which ones did well, which ones produced um, produced well, didn't have a lot of cracking or didn't have a lot of problems or things that mm-hmm. tasted really good and that we liked. And that's kind of how we narrow it down. So there are some varieties that I thought were really pretty or they tasted really good, but they were just too you know, too hard to grow. It had to constantly mm-hmm. baby them. So it's just kind of figuring out what, what grows well. And sometimes it's just what grows well that year. Like some years here will be great for tomatoes and some years people will do terrible. And that's something we've noticed about because it's, it's a learning curve since we're not from the South. It's, figuring out this climate. Yeah, I will say, though, that I noticed that a lot of people had um, a lot of challenges with tomatoes this year. And although we had our own challenges, it didn't seem to be as devastating for us as it did for a lot of other people. I think we did a lot better tomato-wise than most everybody else in the area. And I figured that's probably because of our soil. Yeah, but potatoes didn't do so well this year. (laughs) (laughs) Are you guys saving seeds from your favorite varieties? We are. I think we could probably be a little bit better than that. And I know that Ingrid is definitely better about that than I am. Um, but we are we're definitely saving seed. I love saving the seeds. I, I think, I mean, I, as much as I love getting my seed catalogs that I call my plant form that I, <laughs> I have in front of me this time of year, I love the idea of maybe not having to buy mm-hmm. so many seeds every year and really using generation after generation. I think my black cream, I don't think I've grown a black cream tomato from, from, I think I've only grown them from our own seeds after the first year. And that's one of my favorite tomatoes. So um, it's just, it's 
cataloging and 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 the the harder part is we're saving like lettuce seeds because they're not as totally easy. some things are easier some to things save just than make so many seeds you like kind of just have seeds from them everywhere that's what i found with the herbs especially <laughs> yes we get uh-huh. a lot of volunteers that way which is great <laughs> volunteers kind of go where they want to be maybe give you some ideas for how to rearrange your garden a little bit yeah, exactly. I, you know, it was funny. We, we planted sunflowers every single year and we never had much luck. We'd get one or two sunflowers come up. And this past summer, well, actually it was this, this spring, they came up early. There was this huge like stand of sunflowers and mm-hmm. it, they had come, they're in full bloom early June. And I know that because that's when we had our chicken tour. And it looked like they were intentionally planted planted there, but they weren't. They just kind of found that place. And there was a bunch of plants in a row that grew up on the corner of our property. Wow. We couldn't have put them in a better place. <laughs> it was quite impressive looking. It was. And we actually ended up selling sunflower seeds that we had from our microgreens um, at the at the chicken tour. Because people would see the sunflowers and then we raised money for the charity that the chicken tour was raising money for. We just, we, you know, we put the oh, sunflower seeds and we just had a suggested donation because people saw these amazing sunflowers mm-hmm. and they're saying, well, I'm going to throw in a dollar for sunflower seeds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can we plug that charity? Yeah, totally. Urban Ministries. Urban Ministries, which is um, a, a local uh, nonprofit here that provides food, clothing, um, and health care, and shelter to um, to families in Wake County here. And they do great work. Wow. And they actually have a, a, food, uh, a food bank. Yeah, like a, a food bank um, that people can go and shop for produce and, and things like that. And we donated some of our produce during, during the year to them as well. That's that's amazing. And so they host the chicken tours? Well, they, there's a chicken tour that they've been doing for about 15, 14 years, I think, here in Raleigh. And it started out very small. And it was just people inside the Beltline, a bunch of neighbors that had chickens, and it got really big really quickly. So they realized that they had to control it. And by controlling it, they figured they would charge an admission. And if they charged admission, they wanted to have a beneficiary to that to those that admission fee. So they one of the hosts, original hosts, was on the board of the um, of Urban Ministries in Wake County. So they just became the charity that ended up hosting this tour. So basically it's people in the area that have chicken coops that want to show them off, um, offer up their houses. And then on the day of the tour, there's a map and a list that goes out. So people pay a, a fee for a ticket carload or individual and yeah all the money goes to benefit urban ministries awesome everyone in raleigh should participate in that i want to visit during chicken tour oh you should definitely come you could be you could help us we always need an extra person to help um answer questions about gardens and chickens so you'd be perfect (laughs) that would be so fun (laughs) what what time of year is it (laughs) it's usually the first saturday in june sweet yeah there's a lot of nice um, like urban farms here. Um, there's the Raleigh City Farm, 
there's the well-fed community garden um, and their the well-fed community garden their food feeds um, the irregardless cafe which is a local restaurant uh, so there's a lot of garden and business community interaction here which is a really ni- which is really nice which is one of the reasons why we- there's also a lot of really impressive smaller gardens that we've just kind of stumbled upon, like Roland. Um, his place is amazing. If you remember that, we were looking at that one house over in Durham, and they had that big garden in the front yard with the chickens. And uh, it just seems like there's more of that in a smaller area in, in this area than any place else I think we've we've been to before together anyway. Mm-hmm. So cool. So we're, we're wrapping up our time here, and I just have a few closing questions for you guys. I would love to know what your um, required reading or podcast is for our listeners and for me. Well, uh, I mean, Sean, Sean's the guy that watches all the videos. I, I have to say that he and I bring different skills to our um, venture here. And he's really good on researching things. Um, I I like Charles Downing. He does a no day gardening method in England. Um, And Toby Hemingway, who's a permaculturist, he reads books and stuff. I don't really listen to podcasts as much because I'm usually, when I work from home, I'm usually editing videos or doing something where I I have to focus. So I don't do as much podcasting as I should, but those, that would be some of the people that I would recommend. I know Sean has some as well. Well, yeah, I mean, aside from the Growing Forward podcast, of course. There, <laughs> I actually, um, I, I probably spend more of my time with YouTube videos. There's a there's a plethora of like really amazing YouTube channels for a lot of this stuff. You know, there's a a farm in upstate New York, a gentleman named Connor Crickmore, um, who's been actually slowly reducing the size of his farm because it's becoming so productive. Wow. Never saying. Uh, Curtis Stone videos, gentleman up in Canada, who actually started, he started a commercial operation on um, like just a residential lot. And then he started growing on other residential lots in his area. He struck deals with neighbors. And just kind of grown into a multi-person, um, you know, commercial residential agriculture operation. Um, there's a few other ones that I think are really good. There's a, a gentleman up in Jersey that does a food forest garden. I don't remember his name, but he's got some pretty good stuff. And then if you can actually get through the Growing Your Greens videos, there's some pretty good material there. Although the individual is quite a character, so. It takes okay. some getting used to. <laughs> Fair enough. Awesome. I haven't heard of many of those people. So that's great. I'm excited to go check those out. There's, I'm finding there's a lot more YouTube channels popping up. There's actually a gentleman right here in Raleigh that's got a is a multi-acre property. I think he's growing on something like a tenth of an acre plot on a two-acre lot. Um, gentleman named Josh Statton or Josh Satin, Satin Hill Farm. And he started a, a YouTube channel fairly recently, and he's actually got a number of videos out there now. Awesome. That's tiny, tiny, tiny. 
They're smaller than that. I'm seeing where people are actually making a living off like, you know, half acre lots. Mm-hmm. Where I mean like the entire lot would be, you know, a half acre and, and then you've got the the house and the and garage and stuff on the plot. So that yeah. you know, they are just growing on every possible inch of it. I don't know how lucrative it is, but they seem to be making a go at it. Yeah. And as we discussed with this sort of work, it's not necessarily about making money, but about affecting your planet and your community in a positive way. That can be a much better use of your time than just trying to make money. So second question, what is your favorite plant? (laughs) Um, Robert. Robert. (laughs) (laughs) um, I love perennials and I love like sunflowers and dahlias. Um, But I have to say as far as like a vegetable plant. One of the, my favorite things are tomatoes because I was never a big fan of tomatoes. And that's the one thing that everybody can grow that will never taste the same when you grow it as it does in a supermarket. It always is a million times better when you, especially if you grow an heirloom tomato, but it, there's nothing that compares to the taste of a fresh grown tomato. Yeah. So there's just, yeah, I mean, everything does taste better that you grow yourself. Besides the fact that it's just so, um, it's so rewarding. But besides that, it's just that there's no comparison of the taste of a homegrown tomato. Right, what about you, Sean? Robert is your favorite plant. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite plant. Um, you know, flowers would be marigolds and sunflowers. Um, I'm kind of a big sweet pepper fan, pretty fanatical about potatoes, but these are more just foods that I like to eat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite plant. That's totally a perfect answer. So what advice would you have for um, entrepreneurs or people who really want to start an initiative who have been, you know, dreaming and planning and trying to figure out logistically how to dive into their mission? that you would have liked to have gotten when you were starting out? Start small, find out what grows well in your area, grow stuff that you like to eat and don't be afraid to kill mm, stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You really, you can't be afraid to fail. I think that's where we've learned the most. And people always say, Oh, you have such a green thumb. And I should, and I always think like, have you seen the trail of orchids that I've killed, you know? <laughs> I have a similar trail. <laughs> and just so many things that just don't do well, but we just don't give up. That's that's really what it's about. Like you said, don't be afraid to kill something and don't get discouraged when you do. Yeah, realistically, if you're an ordinary person and you are going to grow some stuff, stuff will die. <laughs> Probably a lot of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. How can people get in touch with you two? Um, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, Ralstead Farm. Visit our web- website at ralsteadfarm.com. And you can email me at ingrid at ralsteadfarm.com, which you can get on the website. Um, and just follow us there, mostly on, on Instagram and Facebook, but website as well. Sweet. I love your Instagram. And that's R A L S T E A D farm. 
facebook.com right or, or on instagram it, it, and facebook yeah it's it was named because it's kind of a conglomeration of raleigh homestead mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how we got that name i thought it was a family name no it's not <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I think all the work you're doing is just so cool. And I'm going to come visit during the chicken tours one of these years. I I would love that. We would definitely love that. Thank you, Bethany, for having us and for doing what you're doing so people can see the value in growing food and learning about what they can do to kind of offset their carbon footprint as well totally. yes thank you so much thank you and good luck with 2020 it's gonna be a big year you have to keep me keep me updated i'll follow your instagram and see what happens yeah Great. thank you okay have a good night guys thanks bethany What a great time talking with Sean and Ingrid. They are so inspirational and such a sweet couple. I hope you all really enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can always do so on Instagram. My handle is Bethany underscore growing forward. You can also find me uh, through my email, growingforwardpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for taking time out of your day to listen to this podcast. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye. Summer save me. All the structures of my time are insecure with false foundations. And I look for truth and find the views obscure. Without borders in our minds Could we make peace with our own kind? Your fire